Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hi, it's Anoush here. If you're a regular listener of the New Statesman podcast, you'll know that we've been closely following the lead up to the Scottish elections on the 6th of May. These could be pivotal elections, not just for the next four years in Scottish politics, but potentially for the future of the United Kingdom. So for the next four weeks, we're going to do something a bit different. Every Wednesday, we'll publish a special episode like the one you're about to hear, dedicated entirely to the latest developments in Scotland. Chris Deering, our Scotland editor is going to take the reins for these bonus episodes. Alva, Stephen and I will pop up from time to time along with some other of our New Statesman colleagues and a few special guests from the world of Scottish politics. It's going to be a fascinating few weeks in politics, so I hope you enjoy these extra episodes. I'll be back with Stephen and Alva in our next regular show. But for now, Chris Deering, over to you. Thanks, Anoush. It's great to be here and I'm really looking forward to these next few episodes. So, Welcome to the New Statesman podcast's first Scottish election special. In this episode, we'll be discussing the state of play so far on the election trail and whether there's any sign that the all-powerful SNP could be reined in by the opposition parties. They are an all-dominant establishment in Scotland now. I mean, they are hegemonic (laughs) in Scotland. That can only last for so long without there being a reaction to it. That's Blair McDougall, the Labour electoral strategist who led the successful Better Together campaign in 2014. He'll be joining me later in the show. First, what's been happening this week? Well, last night, party leaders gathered for the second televised debate. Scotland did vote to stay in Europe, so what's our route to respecting the way people in Scotland voted in that Brexit referendum, other than independence? You are determined to open the wounds of the country that we had tried to close in the last few years. This is reckless. The future of the country should be for people in Scotland to decide. What people are going to see already tonight is bickering about old arguments, which is people's own interests, not the national interests. There seems to be general agreement among those not pushing any particular candidate or party, that Anas Sarbar was again the best performer on the night. If you speak to people right across the country, what they are worried about right now isn't actually the date of a referendum. What they're worried about right now is keeping their loved ones safe. The new Scottish Labour leader's calm manner and positioning of himself as a reasoned and thoughtful alternative to the SNP or the Conservatives is impressing many, though whether this bears fruit in the polls remains to be seen. Douglas Ross, the Tory leader with the independence fixation, took his foot off the pedal somewhat and presented a gentler, even cuddlier version of himself. What's most important in life? Spending time with family and a commitment 
to building a better future for the next generation. Nicola Sturgeon was on the back foot at times, defending the SNP's 14-year record in government. I, I think we took her eye off the ball uh, on drugs deaths, and I've said as much to the Scottish Parliament. Though she did make the good, and when you think about it, quite weird point, that she's the only one of the leaders explicitly saying she wants to be First Minister. In asking you to re-elect me as First Minister, I promise you this, strong leadership to steer the country through the pandemic. The debate came shortly after a forced hiatus in campaigning. If I may ask you all to stand and to join me in a one minute silence. Politicians agreed briefly to suspend their campaigns after just two weeks following the death of the Duke of Edinburgh. But one party in particular returned from the hiatus with a bang, the bang of a medieval cannon that is. And this demonstration of people powered by the small folk of Scotland was the straw which broke the spine of English superiority. Alex Salmon continued his attempt to recast himself as a returning nationalist hero with a video for his Alba party, in which the actor Angus McFadgen portrays what I must say is a rather infirm-sounding Robert the Bruce. Whether breaking English spines is the kind of blood-and-soil message the modern nationalist movement will warm to, not to mention the wider electorate, is a moot point. I was also impressed by the Bruce's prediction that here and now people power will prevail, which showed an impressive grasp of modern terminology for a 14th century freedom fighter. Alba will unite the clans. I'm joined now by Ben Walker from the New Statesman's data journalism team. Ben's also the co-founder of the polling aggregator Britain Elects and runs the New Statesman's Scottish election poll tracker, which you can see on newstatesman.com. So, Ben, after two weeks of the campaign, where do the parties stand compared to how they began? Has there been any shift? Not really. The debates look like they haven't uh, changed the numbers particularly well. So before the campaign even began, the SNP were experiencing something short of a significant fall in support. Both the First Minister and her party were receiving uh, poor marks over the Salman Sturgeon saga. And that seems to have at least been partly responsible for both their drops in support and indeed uh, drop in support for independence too. So in the days leading up to the campaign, the numbers were mired with that. But now, a few weeks on, what fall the SNP saw seems to have been mostly, though not all, recuperated. Compared to the last election, the SNP are about two to three points down on what they achieved in the list vote. The Scottish Tories are likewise down two to three points. Scottish Labour are down only about one point, if that, which, according to our modelling, really throws open the potential for them to come second, beating the Tories. Uh, the Lib Dems, they're up by around one to two points. And the Greens, the party that looks set to be the biggest gainers of this election, though only relatively, are up three points. If the polls are right and the election was held today, the SNP would see their number of MSPs at Holyrood up by three seats because they'd make gains in the constituency vote. Uh, the Tories would be down seven seats, Labour down only one, and the Greens would be up one. Uh, Nicola Sturgeon's comment in the uh, leaders' debate that she was the only political leader standing to actually be First Minister and, and be in government um, is true, of course. And really, the battle is for second place between Labour and the Conservatives. And the Tories are obviously banking on their anti-independence campaign to uh, pull in those voters who really don't want another independence referendum, whereas Labour is attempting to move the campaign away from independence and, and leaning heavily on the impressive displays by their shiny new leader. Um, 
is this going to have any effect, do you think, or is the, the Tory focus on blocking independence and the SNP and Greens' desire for a referendum going to ensure it stays front and centre? I mean, what, what are the voters saying about their priorities? Do they align to the political parties? Yeah, if you just looked at the debates, you would think that Anasawa was sort of defining the debate that post-Indy on subjects, not about independence. But but really, the, the data shows not much shift Anasawa has experienced what can only be described as a pretty good bounce in his own public image. He has impressed the public pretty well so far. The voters, both yes and no, don't have much that are negative to say about him. But is he changing the political weather? Uh, No, there isn't really much to see there. Um, What we are seeing in terms of issues most important to voters, independence is still top. It's always going to be top. It's been top since time immemorial. Well, since the since the SNP won their first election in two thousand and seven. Well, since the SNP uh, got into government in in two thousand and seven. But really, we're not seeing much. The most enthusiastic voters are those more likely to be um, concerned with the constitution. Those not concerned with the constitution are less likely to be enthusiastic voters. And so what you're going to see in polls is a potential, a potential at the moment for SNP and Conservative voters to be overstated a little bit because they are the most enthusiastic. There may be more Labour voters out there. There may be more Green and Lib Dem and maybe even Alba Alba voters out there. But, But those least concerned with independence, according to the polls, are the least enthusiastic. That may change and the polls may get it wrong. You talk about Alba and... Can we tell anything yet about the potential ALBA performance? I mean, they're laying it on thicker than granny's porridge with that latest PPB. Is is this likely to help them? What do they need to do to win seats? And, and who will it hurt if they do? I, if, if I could say, I kind of have a bit of a weird hot take, which is that um, this kind of Robert the Bruce appeal, it, there's, there's a demographic for that. There's a definite demographic for that kind of like, you know, there's Robert Ruse kind of nationalist Scots who kind of believe in their blood and blood and soil Scottish nationalism definitely exist out there. There is a there is a market for the kind of Alba party that is less Brexit, less um, EU friendly. Uh, very just as in, just as pro independence, but less EU friendly. Uh, let's just remember a great portion of the yes vote in 2014 did vote leave in the 2016 referendum. And uh, if, if Nicola Sturgeon is sort of marketing herself as the first minister that will take Scotland, independent Scotland, back into the EU, that that will turn a few voters off. Now, data. So so Alba's been mentioned in a few polls so far, and in three polls, they're on 3%. On one, they're on 2%. And on one, they're on 6%. So a range of 2 to 6%. That is actually, rather annoyingly, on the boundary line between winning seats and not. So we don't know exactly where they are, but we know this. Alba need to have 5 or 6% of the vote in one region before they start winning seats. We don't know that yet. There is a potential that they could do really well in North East Scotland around Aberdeenshire, Gordon, formerly Alex Salmon's constituency. But again, we don't have the data yet. What Alba need is 5 to 6% in one region for them to win a seat there. If they get 5 to 6% across the country, across the whole of Scotland, you're looking at them getting between six and eight seats. Thanks very much, Ben. You can keep up with the latest polling data on the New Statesman Scottish Election Poll Tracker, which you can find on newstatesman.com or just Google Scottish Election Tracker. We're offering a special discount on new subscriptions to the New Statesman for listeners to these podcasts. You can get 12 weeks for just £12 by visiting newstatesman.com forward slash subscribe 12. 
after the break. Anas, I think, is kind of looking for an uh, I agree with Nick moment. He recognises that rather than having an argument about the policy of independence, you have an argument about the process of the constitutional debate. Political strategist Blair McDougall on whether Scottish Labour have a fighting chance under new leader Anna Sarwa. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, bit to get 30, bit to get 20, 20, 20, bit to get 20, 20, bit to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promoting for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Now, I'm delighted to be joined by Blair McDougall, a weathered Labour election strategist and the man who ran the successful Better Together campaign in 2014. Blair's new blog, Notes on Nationalism, has quickly become a must-read for its thoughts on the state of the political debate in Scotland and its insights into how this campaign is being fought. Welcome to the New Statesman podcast, Blair. Thanks for having me. Delighted as ever. Let's start by talking about these first weeks of the, the campaign. One thing that struck me from your writing is your analysis of how the SNP's position has, has changed in this election. So despite being in government for 14 years, they've previously managed to run in elections as if they are the opposition, as if they are the outsiders to the establishment. And your view is that this isn't proving possible this time round, and, and that instead they're being forced to defend themselves as a government and on the record that, that comes with that. Why do you think that is? What, what has changed well, I think we should say first, you, you, you say their position has changed. Maybe their position hasn't changed, but their performance uh, has. Um, I think there's a few things. I think incumbency eventually comes for everybody uh, in government. Um, uh, there comes a point where uh, you just feel a little tired and you're a little uh, too familiar uh, to people. And I think they're they're at the beginnings of that um, as a government. I think the other thing that's changed, and you saw a, you saw a sign of that in the first leaders' debate when Nicola Sturgeon tried to use uh, to play some of the old tunes about grievances around welfare reform and the impact of that. And Willie Rennie, the Lib Dem leader, had interrupted her to point out that actually, were it not for her delaying the devolution of welfare powers, those welfare powers would actually be within her control. Um, so I think there's a, there's a feeling at the moment that there's there's issues that they are talking about which are about fixing things that uh, problems that they've created. There are then problems they're trying to exploit, which I think increasing numbers of people now understand that they have the power to do to do something about it. Um, and I think those two things are kind of kind of coming together. Um, I think they are lucky. Uh, in their opponents. They've consistently been lucky in their opponents. Um, uh, I think that's beginning to change with the Labour Party, um, but they are still... Um, uh, I think if they are if they are re-elected and if they are re-elected handsomely, I think it will be without a f- huge sense of enthusiasm, as it perhaps has been in the past. 
And they are, as you say, still miles ahead in, in the polls, and that seems unlikely to change too dramatically in the next few weeks. But but then the SNP have been through such a, a turbulent period. We've had the Salmond affair, the real divisions in the nationalist movement to the point that new and competing parties have been set up, including Alex Salmond's ALBA or ALABA party, however we're pronouncing it today. Uh, there's a sense that while Nicola Sturgeon's opponents are in the opposition parties, her enemies are on her own side. You're a Labour strategist. How do you take advantage of this scenario? Well, I think what's interesting to me is that when you are faced with uh, division on your own side, you've got a choice, a choice what to do. Um, You can be essentially strong or weak um, in response to it. And Nicola Sturgeon, um, I mean, the the creation of Alapa is a a symptom of something rather than a cause of it. Um, for a, for many months, there's been this um, chorus of dissent within the SNP and the the very strong, very disciplined, very centralised message that we saw, for example, in 2014, is gone. You know, it's much more kind of thousand thousand flowers bloom uh, responses to any question now, and she had a choice. She could have stood up to that internal dissent and said, "Look." we need to park a referendum for a few years. Um, that could have been the message. Um, and instead, um, you know, the day before the, the, the election campaign started, she published a referendum bill which said that they would try and hold that referendum within, within two and a half years. Um, and that felt like she was choosing her strategy for an internal rather than an external audience. Um, now, the... The, the polls suggest that on the timing of a referendum, leaving aside the kind of what people think about how they would vote in a referendum, that there's about a third of the population who support that policy of of, of doing it quickly. Um, most other people will tend to choose either a um, maybe in a few years' time or maybe never um, uh, sort of position. Um, and she's choose to, chosen to camp in the position of, of going sooner rather than later, which feels um, like she has um, one eye on that internal um, uh, uh, fight within the SNP, the kind of impatient internal activists. Um, I think I described it as being, you know, she, she had a choice between choosing to be Tony Blair and standing up to the, the people within her own her own coalition uh, who were uh, maybe against where the voters were uh, and she's kind of chosen to be Jeremy Corbyn. She is, it feels like she's going into this election believing that her core is mobilised enough and energetic enough that it will get her over the line um, rather than worrying about those those swing voters um, too much. Um, And it might be that she gets away with that. It might be that Labour haven't got enough time yet to maybe capitalise on uh, Anas Sarwar's um, improved leadership ratings, um, that, that though they won't transfer over in time to the Labour Party. Um, but she might get a surprise. We've seen it in the, the recent past, in the 2017 election, where the voters felt that she was needed reminding that they weren't quite as enthusiastic as she was at the prospect of leaving the UK, even if they were curious um, about it. So we'll see what happens. As you say, I think I think the likelihood is they'll get re-elected and re-elected handsomely. Um, but they do feel internally focused and they do feel very, very tired. I suppose that's um, one of the, the, the issues is that, you know, we can point to 
misjudgments that we might feel that Nicola Sturgeon is making. We can point to the crises that the party has going on uh, inside it and in the wider nationalist movement. You know, Douglas Ross, the leader of the Scottish Conservatives, has been battering away at the SNP on the Union largely for for a while now. Um, Anas is Anas Sarwar, the new leader of the Scottish Labour Party, is obviously uh, uh, just just beginning his journey and hasn't had time to make too much of an impact. But despite all of this, and as you say, in twenty seventeen. 2016, the, the the electorate gave Nicola Sturgeon, made her the largest party, but they didn't give them the overall majority. Yet, it looks like they might well get the overall majority this time for a fourth term in government, which is kind of unthinkable in the normal political swing of things. So what's going on there and how, how do you pull that back? Is it a matter of just waiting, just giving it time and preparing yourself to be an alternative government in due course? Or do you think there are things that can be done by the opposition parties that they haven't done so far that can really land some blows and cut that lead? I think, I think the f- I'd say three things. The first thing is there is a um, centrality to, to, to the SNP strategy, which is always about um, the inevitability of independence. Even when they lost in 2014, they immediately transitioned into a message which was, well, we didn't win this time, but we will win. Um, And too many people in the opposition buy into that. Too many people accept the narrative um, of their strength. Um, In the last 10 opinion polls, uh, support for independence hasn't gone gone above 50%. In the most recent one, it's at 45. It's literally where they were. Now, there is a deeper problem of confidence on the, the pro-union side, which needs to be addressed. But I think the first thing about uh, tackling the SNP is not to buy into their narrative, not to reinforce their narrative. The second thing I'd say is, and you mentioned Douglas Ross, the, con- the Conservatives have a have a strategy that's worked for them. They recognise that there is, you know, about thirty percent of the the population in Scotland who are. Unionists in a in a in, in an identity sense, um, they are not prog- not just voting to stay in the UK out of a sense of pragmatism, but out of a sense of identity, and they've decided they're going to try and cannibalise as many of those votes as possible. That's fine as a strategy for being the second party, but it's only ever going to be a strategy to be the opposition. Um, that's true in simple numbers terms because they're not seeking in any way in their strategy to reach out to soft SNP voters. Um, um, but it's also true in terms of the frame of, of Scottish politics because the more you make Scottish politics only about the constitution, the more you're gifting the, the SNP the ability to define uh, Scottish politics on their terms, which is constitutional terms, which is identity, identity politics. Um, so I think you see an Asarwar now trying to break that frame. Previous Labour leaders have done it as well, have, have made an effort to try to break out of that, um, that constitutional uh, frame. Hasn't worked um, in the past. We found ourselves as a Labour Party in no man's land while the people fighting the identity wars are shelling each other over our heads uh, and we, we get kind of squeezed out of the debate. What I think is maybe interesting at the moment, apart from you know the issues of them that come with them having been incumbents for so long and the feeling of tiredness, is that 
for so long, independence represented something which felt hopeful. It was a blank canvas for people who wanted to to change something in their lives. You've now, with the pandemic, I think, for the first time, got Labour... Labour have something which feels similar to that blank canvas. The the the, the post pandemic moment feels like a fresh start, and that I think has gifted Anasarwar the ability to kind of sound more hopeful, more positive, um, in the way that he's he's talking about the future, and it's also enabled him, I think, to grab onto the kind of fundamental values of what 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 what's kind of underneath the pro UK argument and I think it's something we we weren't terribly good at actually in 2014 um where so the yes yes side would always talk about independence in terms of uh, the fundamental value you know you move out of your house you try and become independent you want to uh, be independent in your fa- personal finances and stuff like that now Anas is beginning to talk about the idea of being together um, as being a fundamental value as well. And that's maybe what the pandemic has done. It's, it's, it's given us an ability to talk about um, uh, being divided from one another, being a negative um, on a very uh, on a sort of deeper human level. And as you say, Scottish Labour has this brand new leader in Anas Sarwar. Um, so far, the signs... I think a pretty positive people in the Labour Party that I know seem quite uh, optimistic, quite upbeat uh, about his performance. In the first televised leaders debate, he was seen by many as the the winner. He has an an easy manner and it seems a clear path that he he wants to follow too. He obviously doesn't have a lot of time to make an impression on the the, the voters and Labour's on, I think, 24 seats at Holyrood at present. And Anas has said that it'll be a struggle even to hold on to these. You know, he's not not promising the moon uh, at this point. And given the squeeze between the Tories campaigning on no to independence and the SNP campaigning on yes, how does Labour get a hearing from the electorate after so long where it really didn't feel particularly central to the debate? And how does it carve out a distinct position for itself just in the next few weeks, far less beyond that? Yeah, so I think um, I, I, I was thinking about this in, in the lead up to the to the last debate. And uh, Anas, I think, is, is, is kind of looking for an uh, I agree with Nick moment. You know, we are. Uh, we remember in 2010, you had uh, David Cameron and Gordon Brown sort of slugging each other, and Nick Clegg coming through the middle with a, a more of a "Hey, can't we all just get along?" message. And I think that um, an element of that is being more positive. Um, there was an element of wouldn't it be nice to have something different? Wouldn't it be nice if we all got along in, in, in Nick Clegg's positioning then? But there was also a really strongly kind of almost anti-political element to that Nick Clegg messaging in 2010, where it was about, you know, these two either side of me are a headache. They are uh, uh, droning on with the same old arguments. And wouldn't it be just nice to, to have a break from this? Um, and I think that's where that's where Anas is trying to position himself is that he recognises that rather than having an argument about the policy of independence, you have an argument about the process of the constitutional debate. So even people who are a substantial minority of the the people who are supporting independence when they're asked the binary question in opinion polls, I think will think, do I really want the headache of the antagonism 
the fighting? Do I really want to go back to that binary division of of, of Scottish society uh, so quickly? And I think I think that's what he is trying to 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 get hold of. Every moment that goes by in the campaign makes it less likely that he's able to cut through, and that's why I think it's so, these debates are so important. They're one of the few moments where he gets to do that. It was so important that he, that he I think, won the, the the first debate. He's got to do do that in the in the next uh, STV um, uh, debate um, as well. But you know, if you look, you you lose a week of campaigning with with Prince Philip, you know, for example. Um, these these weeks go by very very quickly, but I don't think anyone in the Labour Party is viewing Anas's as leadership as something we, which would you'd come to a judgment on at the end of the campaign. I think it's it is about setting a frame for what what happens next, rather than uh, necessarily uh, looking at the scorecard and uh, on the seventh of May. Well, well, while we have you here, it would seem remiss not to talk a bit about the constitution having run better together in 2014. M- much of the territory has changed since then. That The UK has left the European Union. Boris Johnson is prime minister. We've been through the Jeremy Corbyn era. The consequence of this election, if the SNP either wins an overall majority on its own or with, say, the Greens or ALBA, will be a demand for a second independence referendum. And that feels like it will dominate the next parliament, if, if that's the case. How, how would you advise the UK government to respond to, to that situation? Can a flat no work, or are they going to have to play cleverer than that in their response? Well, I, I, the first thing I'd say is that, for me, this is a political uh, question. Um, uh, and the decision on it should be a political one rather than uh, uh, worrying too much about the the, 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 the other aspects of it. Um, as you say, a lot has changed since 2014. We've had economic crisis, we've had uh, health crisis, we've had really a political crisis in, in British politics with, with what's happened to the Labour Party and the Conservative um, Party. But we should keep the heat they they are still only with with everything that the pro union side has handed them on a plate still at 45% of the raw vote the problem is on our side the problem is one of confidence and of of leadership um on our side of it um one of the lessons i think uh, david cameron's in the news a lot uh, at the moment for 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 less positive reasons but one of the things he did very well um was refusing to be the villain that they wanted him to be. You know, he refused to take the bait every time Salmon d- d- demanded he, d- he debate with them. Um, he allowed them uh, to uh, uh, to own the process of the, the referendum uh, itself um, so that there was never any room for grievance. For me, I think that's that's got to be a consideration at the other side of this. Um, uh, uh, and I would say the smart thing to do on the other side of this would be to, instead of a blanket no, is to say not never, but not now, um, and to challenge, and this is where maybe Boris Johnson's not in a great position to make this challenge, but it, certainly the Labour Party is, to challenge the SNP to say, if you are really serious about this, Okay, let's let's get over the pretense that you think you're going to be ready to do this in the next, you know, eighteen months, two years. Um, if you're really serious about this, you will have set out a plan for, for how the new currency will operate. You will have set out a plan for how a new border with England 
um, will work, given given the EU continuity has disappeared. Um, and you will have set out a serious plan for how Scotland's uh, uh, public services will be funded. Um, now, what that has the capability to do is to frame the debate away from where the SNP want it to be, which is Scotland's right to choose, and into whether this is actually a good idea or not. And I think when you get into the the, the, the weeds of the detail of independence, I think people walk away from it. I think there was a, there was a really revealing bit of messaging in the SNP's uh, recent party political broadcast where rather than making the case for independence, they were entirely saying they say, they being, uh, you know, Boris Johnson and those, those, those horrible Tories, they say you can't have a referendum. And that is straightforward reverse psychology. And any parent knows you only use reverse psychology when you're trying to sell someone on something they don't actually want. You know, it's like uh, telling your kids, I bet you can't finish that broccoli, you know. Um, they know that people are not in any sort of hurry to have this referendum. So they want it to be a debate about whether um, Scotland is allowed um, uh, by the rest of the UK to have it. And the only way to win that fight is not to have it. So you don't give you know, the SNP a referendum, but you uh, don't have a blanket no. You say, well, look, let's have a conversation about this, but you wouldn't expect us to say yes to a referendum until you have done all of uh, all of your homework. And realistically, there isn't going to be a Better Together campaign next time. The coming together of the unionist parties in 2014 um, didn't really have great consequences, maybe for Labour in the, the aftermath. So the sense is that we'll have Better Together campaigns rather than a campaign. Is that how you see it? And how do you produce a united voice then if you're... Yes, yes and no. I think for... Um, so a broad-based campaign is a legal necessity because you can't spend money in a, in a referendum without one. You need something which is a, a, an umbrella campaign. That doesn't necessarily need to be a cross-party campaign. It can be you know, a community-based campaign. Um, uh, and I think that's what you're more likely to see um, this time um, than, than, than last time. In truth, I think notwithstanding the, the, the politics of that, uh, uh, so the, the sort of scar tissue that Labour has of the, the post-referendum kind of, kind of fallout um, probably push, pushes them towards something that sounds more like that anyway. I think you probably want something that's a bit more insurgent um, this time. I mean, we, we started this conversation talking about the SNP having been you know, 14-year incumbents. Um, at the time of the next referendum, you know, they might be sort of going on 20-year uh, incumbents if there is another referendum. Um, and so I think you would want something that felt more like a scrappy insurgent than the, you know, representation of an, an alternative establishment. Um, uh, I think there's a... Um, one of the things, and it maybe, maybe square, squares the, the, the whole conversation... One of the things I think that unites the SNP's feeling of, of tiredness um, and, and looking forward uh, in terms of the constitutional debate is the fact that they are an all-dominant establishment in Scotland now. I mean, they are hegemonic <laughs> in Scotland. Um, that can only last for so long without there being a reaction to it. Um, and I think there is an opportunity, particularly for Labour, 
to tell a story um, about the, being the reaction to that establishment. Um, and you start to you start to see the the raw material for that every day. There's there's you know little scandals here and there, little uh, approaches to um, the use of power which leave a bad taste in the mouth. Um, so I think the ammunition is there. It's whether it's whether there's someone to tell that story. Great. Thanks very much, Blair. Thank you so much. That's it for this episode. I'll be back next Wednesday for another Scottish election special. Stephen, Anoush, and Alva are here on Friday and again on Tuesday. Until next time. You've been listening to a special episode of the New Statesman podcast. I'm Chris Deeran. You can read more of the New Statesman Scottish election coverage at newstatesman.com and follow me on Twitter at, at Chris Deeran. This podcast was produced by Chris Stone and our music is Devil with the Devil, licensed under Creative Commons. This Mother's Day, treat mom to healthy, glowing skin with Osea's limited edition skincare sets. Osea has been making clean, seaweed-infused products for nearly 30 years. Their advanced eye care duo brightens and firms skin around your eyes, while the Golden Glow Body Trio nourishes and smooths skin all over. Go to oseamalibu.com and use code MOM for 10% off your first order site-wide.